Happy Resurrection Sunday. We're so glad that you've chosen to worship our risen Savior with us this morning. And uh, this morning, we're beginning a brand new series. So you get to start off brand new with all of us this morning in Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, and there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew, uh, you can grab that. Ephesians chapter 1, as uh, we look at, the Paul, at, at a letter that Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul, he would have written this letter to the churches of Ephesus and the surrounding areas around 62 AD after his third missionary journey while he was imprisoned on house arrest in Rome. He pens this letter, and it's not really addressing anything in particular. It's just addressing the gospel, the gospel, the great news of Jesus Christ and what we have received in him. And so he sends this letter to a familiar place, a place that he would have spent two to three years in, a place where it says in Acts 19.10 that he preached, he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus was a major port city of its time. It would have been one of the fourth or fifth largest cities, and it had a giant coliseum that held 25,000 people that would have hosted sporting events like, much like the Olympics. Paul's very familiar with this area that he's writing to, and he's writing to them so that they know who they are in Christ. This morning, as we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate the fact that what has been purchased for us on the cross and the promise of the resurrection, we see that we have a redemption in Jesus Christ. John Calvin said that this was his favorite letter. Armitage Robinson called it the crown of Paul's writings. William Barclay says it's the queen of the epistles. So as we begin here, we see the introduction from Paul, and then we see this long 202-word in the Greek run-on sentence where he talks about the fact that we are in Christ. And some 11 times he says things like, in Christ, in him, in whom, in the beloved. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, John Stott says to be in Christ is to be personally and vitally united to Christ as branches are to the vine and members to the body, and thereby also to Christ's people. For it is impossible, impossible to be part of the body without being related to both the head and the members. To be a Christian is, in essence, to be in Christ, one with him and with his people. Because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received countless blessings in Christ. What have we received, as Mark Roberts would say? Well, what are these blessings? Surely they include the gracious gifts that are mentioned here in these verses. Verses 3 through 14. God chose us, predestined us, gave us his grace, redeemed us, forgave us, made known to us his plan. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit and gave us a true purpose for living. Ephesians chapter 1, we look at the redemption this morning we have in Christ. Let me pray for God's word before we jump in. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that in him we have received countless graces and mercies and blessings that we cannot even fathom. We thank you that you're working out our salvation on our behalf, that you have done things for us that we're incapable of doing. Today, Father, we pray that as we get into your word, your word would become clear to us, that your spirit would help us to understand it, and that we would hear the gospel clearly. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and his accomplished work on the cross and his finished work of resurrecting on the third day. 
In Christ's name, amen. The key verse there, verse 7, before I read all of it, says, In him we have redemption, his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption. I I read a story about a young man who... He made a, a model boat. You, anybody into models? And there's, there's one small area in the back of, you know, Hobby Lobby where you can buy models. And that's kind of men's crafting. I guess that's what it is. Maybe you've, you've moved up from Legos to, to those. I don't know what it is. But there's models back there. And there was this boy who, who went and he bought a model and he, he had all the little pieces. And he began to put it together and he put together this model boat. And he loved this boat. He made this boat. He put all the stickers on it. And one day he decided, I wonder if the boat floats. So he takes the boat out and he puts it in a little stream near the town. And he watches the boat. It floats and it's going down the stream. And he's, he's just marveling at it. And he's running alongside the stream. He's watching it. But then the current begins to pick up. And he's finding it harder and harder to keep up with the boat. And before too long, the boat is out of his sight. And he runs and runs and runs and then realizes I lost my boat. A few days later, he's walking through the town. He sees the corner store there, and in the window is his boat. And he runs in and talks to the store clerk, and he's like, sir, this is, this is my boat. I made this boat. Well, son, I, I'm sorry. Someone else turned this boat in, and the only way you can get this boat back is if you buy it. So he runs home, and he cracks open that piggy bank, and he counts out all of his coins, and sure enough, he has just enough money, and so he runs back to the store, and he lays all the money on the, on the counter, and the The man gives him his boat back and he holds that boat in his arms and he says, oh, now you're twice mine. First I made you and now I've bought you. Oh, to think about the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. Not only has he made us, in his image he created us, but now he's bought us back. As John MacArthur says, redemption is, is an act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price for sin, which has outraged his holiness. God is a holy, holy, holy God, and he cannot look upon sin and he cannot stand sin. It it makes him outraged, but yet he's willing to invest himself in redeeming us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. You and I, if we are in Christ... We have been bought back by his blood. As Isaiah says in 53, 4 through 6, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, has pier- he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see that Christ dying for our redemption means more than simply being forgiven of sins. Christ ransomed us by paying for our sins, by taking God's wrath upon himself, and that has bought us back. As 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 would say, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Jesus did not simply forgive us. He has redeemed us. He has paid the full price and settled the score for our salvation. 
This is a beautiful truth that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were all working to bring us back into a right relationship with him. The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people that were enslaved in sin. That plan involved God investing himself into the assurance of our salvation today. Hear this, God could not love you in Christ more than he does right now. God could not be more for your salvation than he is right now in Christ. God could not be working more on your behalf for your salvation than he is right now in Christ. The Father has planned salvation, the Son has accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit is sealing us until the day of our redemption. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. First thing I like to see is because of the redemptive work of Christ, we have been adopted. We have been redeemed and the redemption of Christ has adopted us back into his family. Blessed be the God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Did you see that there in verse four? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is great news. This is awesome news. This is, this is the news that before the world was ever established, God knew you and he had placed his love on you if you are in Christ. There has never been a time when God did not know about you. He did not ever have a time where he did not love you. There has never been a time that God did not know you, did not know what the thoughts were going through your mind, did not know the actions that you were taking place in. There has never been a time where he has not known you and if you are in Christ, there's never been a time that he has not had his love placed on you. A lot of people think that these verses mean that God simply knew beforehand, which God does know beforehand because he is outside of time and space as we know it. He created all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. 
But many people believe that this simply means that he knew beforehand who would choose him. And those are the ones he predestined for salvation. But that's not exactly what this verse says. It says that he set his love on you and chose you before the foundations of the world. Before you ever took a breath, you were known. What a wonderful thought when you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one who made you is the one who purchased you. You say, well, why, why would he choose me? What is it about me? Did, did God just see that I was going to be this awesome? Did God just see that I was going to be morally superior? Did God see that I was going to be so intellectual that I would make good choices? No. In fact, in spite of all of the sin that is in your life, he has placed his love upon you. Deuteronomy 7, as he talks about Israel, 6 through 9 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But, verse 8, is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the, with his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He has set his love on you. Deuteronomy 9, 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because of your, not because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. A stubborn people. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a stubborn person. If things don't go my way, I, I, I really have a hard time with it. And sometimes I'm stubborn towards God. Man, I'm so thankful for his grace. I am so thankful that in spite of all the sin and all the choices and all the things that I've thought and all the things that I've said and all the things that I've acted upon, God has chosen to put his love on me. As we're familiar with these verses out of John chapter 3, 16 through 18, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. I ask you this morning, have you believed? Better yet, has he drawn you to believe? John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Have you been drawn to belief because of the love of Jesus Christ? Scholars say this word draw means an irresistible force. It's the image of a desperately hungry man being drawn to food. Is that what God has done to you? Have you been so desperately hungry for something different than what this world has offered that you have been drawn to the only one who can satisfy 
Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's purpose now. We realize that God has chosen us to belong to him because of his love for us. And so our hearts then should be pouring out in worship, a life that is holy and blameless before him. Our lives should be lived in worship because of what he's done and the love that he's shown us. In fact, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you have been blessed in Christ, then you have been not only redeemed and set free You've been adopted. You've been brought in. Not only has God chosen you, but he's made you a child. As Paul would say in Romans 8, 14 through 17, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Adoption. It's all for God's glory. God's adoption, as R.C. Sproul puts it, of us was initiated by God himself, and the decision to make us his children was made before either we or the world existed. There is a determination, a purpose on the part of God to enlarge his family by bringing rebels and sinners like us into it. It is one thing for human parents to decide to adopt someone who will fit into the family and enhance it. God, however, purposes to adopt those who are the very opposite of himself. The second aspect of adoption is that to the praise of his glorious grace, verse six. Our adoption into God's family is not so much something that confers a benefit on us. In the first instance, it is something that enhances the reputation of God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who has opted to become God and Father to us. All praise is his. It shows us how great God is. We have redemption and adoption for his glory and for his praise. As John Stott puts it, God destined us in love to be his sons. This expression seems to be the key to our understanding of the present consequences of our election. Election is with a view to adoption. Indeed, when people ask us the speculative question why God went ahead with the creation when he knew it would be followed by the fall, one answer we can tentatively give is that he destined us for a higher dignity than even creation would bestow upon us. He intended to adopt us, to make us the sons and daughters of his family. It's one thing to be made in the image of God. It's another thing to be purchased by his blood. That's so, it's so great that it prompts us for worship this morning. Knowing that he has risen from the grave. Because of the redemptive work of Christ, we have been united. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
If you have been blessed in Christ, then you have been redeemed through his blood by being united to him, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. You see, there is no redemption without the crucifixion of Christ. In fact, as Jesus was praying in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. The answer is there's no other way. There is no way for us to be bought back from the slavery of sin except for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness without the blood of Christ. As we see Paul write in Romans 5, 6 through 11, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved in his, by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, all throughout scripture, it speaks of us being unified in Christ being joined with him both in his death, burial, and his resurrection. is the picture of baptism, that we are fully immersed in Christ, that he paid the full penalty for our sins on the cross. And as he was risen from the grave, we too are risen to newness of life. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Romans 6.5, for if we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Oh, there's hope today because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the payment is in full because of the resurrection. There is hope for us today because not only have we been bought back, but we have been brought into a family. And not only have we been brought into a family, but we've been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. You see, it's because of my sin that Jesus had to bleed and die. It's because of your sin that Jesus was stripped naked and he was scourged. Jesus' hands would have been chained above his head to expose his back, his legs, to the executioner's whip, the cat of nine tails. That whip would have been a series of long leather straps and at the end of each strap there would have been heavy balls of metal intended to tenderize the body of the victim. Some of the straps would have had hooks made of either metal or bone. They would have sunk deeply into the shoulders, the back, the legs, and the flesh of Jesus. Once the hooks had sunk deeply into the tenderized flesh, the executioner would have ripped the skin, the muscles, the tendons, and even the bones off the victim as they shouted in agony, shook violently, and bled heavily. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He took the full cup of wrath. Blood would have began to flow down Jesus' face and into his eyes as the crown of thorns were pressed down on his, on his head. His hair would become a matted mess. His bare backs and shoulders would have been exposed to the weighty wooden crossbar that he had to carry to a place of crucifixion. 
Upon arriving at that place of crucifixion, they would have pulled Jesus' beard out as an act of disrespect. They would have spat upon Jesus. They would have cursed Jesus to his face. Then they would have taken long five to seven inch rough metal nails or spikes and they would have driven them into the most sensitive parts of his body, both his hands and his feet. Jesus would have been nailed to a wooden cross. His body would have twitched violently as he screamed in sheer agony. Jesus was then lifted up on that cross and dropped into a prepared hole, causing his body to shake violently into place. He took upon himself our sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the crucifixion, there is no redemption. And the first words that Jesus would have said while hanging on the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Jesus hung on the cross, he would have known that that was the moment that he was paying for the sins, atoning for the sins, the sins that were actually being committed against him at that very moment. You see the utter selflessness of Jesus and his unbroken devotion of being obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. That was the moment. That was the moment, as Martin Luther calls it, of the great exchange where all of my unrighteousness was then placed upon him and his righteousness was then placed on me. And I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing to earn it. And there is nothing about me that is good enough to, to do it. It is all because of the love of Jesus Christ. That moment where we are united with him in his death, as Gary Bashirs puts it, the sinless Jesus so thoroughly took our place that he became the worst of what we are. Rapists, thieves, perverts, addicts, liars, gluttons, gossips, murderers, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, and idolaters. Importantly, Jesus' work on the cross was not just a bookkeeping transaction in a divine economy. Jesus actually took upon himself our sin with all of its horror and all of its shame. We are united with him in his death, but we are also united with him in his life. We have celebration today because of Jesus Christ's finished work, and we know that it was paid in full because the resurrection is the receipt. So we look to Jesus, Hebrews 12, too. The founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Today, we celebrate the resurrection and our redemption because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Thirdly, the last thing I want you to see is because of the redemptive work of Christ, we have been sealed. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see that in verses 11 and 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Our redemption means that before the foundations of the world, we were called. 
We have been now united with Christ in his atoning work of sacrifice on the cross and in the resurrection. And now he has sealed us with his promised Holy Spirit so that we will not be lost. This inheritance, it means to gain something by reason of birth. So as you think in the direction of this, we, we often think in the direction of, of yes, we're going to receive an inheritance, uh, an eternal an eternal life, an eternal glory, a, a place where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness and no more death, an eternal promise of a land that's flowing with milk and honey. But this verb here is also in the passive tense, meaning that it can also be translated in Christ, we were made an inheritance. Oh, you were purchased. You were redeemed. You were bought at a high price. You were not your own. You belong to Jesus. That means that we are Christ's inheritance. He inherited us. He redeemed us. He purchased us. And we are his. And he holds on to us. We will not be lost if we are in Christ. Jesus said to them in John 6, 35 through 40, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you hear the assurance of salvation here? That nothing will be lost that is given to Him. That means that you were bought at Calvary. That means that you are His heritage. You are His inheritance. You are the gift of the Father to the Son. You are valuable to God. You are, you are the victor's prize. Jesus is the victor and he inherited you and he will never cast you out. He not only formed you and made you, but he has now purchased you and he is holding on to you. Let me ask you, if you are in Christ today, do you live as if you are his possession? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh yeah, the second way to interpret this, and as we see here, is that there is an inheritance that we have received Christ. So in one sense, we're his inheritance. He's purchased us. But in the other sense, he is ours. He is ours forevermore. When you become a Christian, part of that inheritance is yours right now in Christ. But also it's not fully realized until the future. So until that moment, you are sealed. This is the idea that you have now been marked. He has put his brand on you. You are now his forevermore. This is the idea of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the internal change, the new branding that defines you and marks you as his. This means that we feel the conviction of sin in our life. This means that we can no longer be content to remain in sin. This means that we have an internal guidance of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. This means that even when sin rears its ugly head for a moment or a season in our life, if we are bought and if we are purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are eternally his and we will not remain in sin for very long. But what about those who simply profess a faith in Jesus that they have never possessed? What will be there to hold them? What will be there to seal them but a promise made by man? Oh, I am thankful for the love of Christ. The love of Christ that before the foundations of the world chose, placed his love upon us. That in him, that if we believe, we can have everlasting life. This moment, this morning, let me ask you, have you been called? Have you come to a point in your life where you have come to Jesus like a hungry beggar looking for food? Have you placed your faith in Jesus as the only hope for your salvation? The only chance that you'll have at redemption from sin? Do you now know the assurance of that salvation because of the Spirit's mark, the Spirit's presence in your life? Today, if you don't know for certain, you can with a simple prayer, a prayer of confession that Jesus is Lord, a surrendering of your life and a repentance of sin that says, today, I accept the fact that you died in my place. You took the full penalty of my sin and I offer my full life to you. Now and forever, seal me with your Holy Spirit until the day of that resurrection.